Thanks, Chrissy. <clears throat> um, we're going to be in Luke chapter 18. Before I get there, though, I'd like to mention a couple of things. Um, first of all, uh, today we are kicking off our family churches. If you don't know what that is, just briefly, uh, what we do here on a Sunday morning is only a, a small fraction of the expression of what we think it means to be part of the church. And uh, what that means is that outside of Sunday morning, um, we gather in various groups and Bible studies and those sorts of things. A new sort of direction that we are trying is uh, what we're calling family churches. They are smaller groups of people. We're going to do meals together. We're going to spend time in prayer together, in the Word together. The reason I bring it up is because we've uh, had registration open for a couple of months. Most of you have already registered. But if you have been on the sidelines and sort of wondering whether or not you wanted to get involved in one of these, you still can, and you can going forward. So if at some point down the road you would like to, you can still register for one of those groups. If you're interested, just come talk to me. I'd love to try and get you plugged into one of those groups. Even if this is your first Sunday with us and you're not even sure whether you're going to stick around here, I would love to introduce you to some people in these groups and you can take it from there. The other thing that I think was supposed to be in the bulletin but didn't get in there, we're doing a visitor lunch next weekend, right? Ken, where are you? right? It's your place. If this is your first Sunday with us, or maybe you've been around for a while and you just haven't been able to attend one of these visitor lunches, we try and do it every couple of months. Uh, Ken and Cheryl open up their house, and it's just an opportunity for you to come have a meal with me and my wife and some of the other leaders, some of our elders and other staff people at Maricopa Springs. So if you have yet to take us up on that lunch, we would love for you to do that. You guys are going to be where? In the back over here? Uh, go back there. I know that people will be probably wanting to talk to them about Financial Peace University, but go back there. I'm sure that Ken and Cheryl will have a pen, and they would love to write down uh, their address for you, or you can plug it into your phone. Um, but come. Come have lunch with us. We, we want you to, to join us. And then it would also be nice for you to let them know so they know how much food to make. Otherwise, I'll overeat. Um, one final thing. I had this idea, and I'm going to give this a try. A while ago, I tried to invite you to ask me questions while I was actually teaching, and it didn't go very well um, because I'm just such a good communicator. Nobody ever had any questions. <laughs> You're laughing, which means you know it's not true. The reason is because like, everybody's terrified to actually interrupt church to, to get a question in. So this is the 21st century. I'm like, I have this thing here where you can communicate to me almost telepathically. Uh, if you don't have my number in your phone already, pull your phone out, get it out. I'm going to give you my phone number. You can put, it, put my phone number in your phone, and I, let's just try this. If you've got a question while I'm teaching, you can text me. I don't, I don't know how well my brain works, whether I can pay attention to my phone and my notes at the same time. My wife is concerned. She doesn't think it's going to go, <laughs> it's going to go very well. All I would ask is that you don't text me like jokes or, or like memes or or gifs or anything like that while I'm trying to preach. Yes? You can text in church so long as you're texting me or Jesus. It's exclusively the, and if you have his phone number, feel free to share, because I don't yet. And uh, I don't know, give this a try. Maybe we'll try it for a couple of weeks and see how it goes. Maybe it will be an epic disaster, and I will repent and recant my decision, but, and change my phone number. <laughs> That is hilarious. I probably won't do that. Go easy on me. This is my first time trying this. So let me pray for us. God, you are so good. We, we love you so much. We think of this psalm. 
Psalm 22 that starts out, Why, O God, have you forsaken me? And we think of Christ on the cross and how he cried out those words. And we thank you that because Christ was forsaken, we are not forsaken. We thank you that because he was smitten and afflicted, we have grace, compassion, and love. We thank you for all of the work that you have done, the extremes that you have gone to to reconcile our broken relationship. We thank you for the humility you've shown towards us, that though we were sinners, though we were enemies, you clothed yourself in frail humanity to come and and not be crowned king, but to die a criminal's death on a cross that we might know what a gracious, loving God you are. And I pray that you would help us see how beautiful these things are, that, that you would touch our hearts with the depth of your grace and your love for us, that we would know what a wonderful God you are, that we would taste and see how good you are, that we would know not just cognitively in our heads, but deep in the deepest recesses of our hearts how much you love us, that you would do this thing to reconcile us to you. Lord, turn our hearts to you in worship this morning. Grow our understanding of who you are. Lead us into deeper fellowship with you by the power of your Spirit, we pray. Amen. Well, hopefully you're already in Luke chapter 18. If you're not, I'd love for you to turn there in your Bible. If you were with us last week, then you might remember we talked about the the rich ruler, which is the the verses before, the ones that we're going to tackle this morning. This guy who ends up choosing the comfort of riches over the joy of following Jesus, he made what I would say is a very foolish and very nearsighted decision to forsake eternal life in order to indulge in the comforts of this life. And I mentioned last week, I think it's a tragic story. Here's a man who couldn't see that what seemed impossible to him setting his heart free from slavery to to stuff, to this world, was in fact possible with Jesus. And if you weren't here uh, to hear me teach on this message, I encourage you to actually look it up on our website or download our podcast. The reason is because it it ties in with what we're going to talk about this morning, and I want you to know that I have a balanced perspective and not imbalanced perspective of what I'm going to teach this morning. And I want you to remember this, after, uh, after the disciples were just blown away by how impossible it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says these words, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And now we're going to see the means by which God accomplishes this impossible task, the impossible task of reconciling mankind to himself, saving mankind. In other words, how has God done this impossible thing of setting the human heart free to love him and to know his joy? So we're going to read verses 31 through 34 of Luke 18. And before I do that, we encounter a common trap uh, in the way that our Bibles are organized. Uh, with headings and with section breaks. I mention this from time to time. If you read Luke 18 quickly, because your Bible puts in these section breaks or verses or, or chapter or headings, uh, what, what happens is sometimes we're tempted to like disconnect these things as if they don't go together. 
as if there's no connection between chapter 18, uh, verses 18 through 30, and then verses 31 through 34, where Jesus is going to foretell his coming death. But actually, nothing could be more natural than for Jesus to say what he says in our text this morning in connection to this interaction he's had with this rich ruler. Because in the earlier dialogue, the rich man, uh, with the rich man and his disciples in verses 18 through 30, I think Jesus tackles the what. What is necessary for man to be saved? Something impossible. God has to do something impossible. God has to tame the wild, wayward heart of mankind. The wayward and rebellious heart of man has to be brought into loving submission to God in order for a person to find eternal life. That's the what of salvation that we see in verses 18 through 30 with the rich man. And I don't think, like I said last week, it's exclusively for rich people. It's for all of us. Now we're going to find the how in verses 31 through 34. How has God accomplished this thing of redeeming the human heart? Here it is. Jesus tells us what's on the horizon, what's coming, what is necessary for him to do in order to set us free from the bondage that we are under to sin and death. Here it is. God must die in order for man to live. Wow, think about that. God must die in order for man to live. Isn't it funny then that the rich ruler thought he was giving up so much if he were to give up his material things to follow after Jesus, when in fact it would be God who would give up so much. God who would humble himself to give up his own life so that this rich man might live forever. And thankfully, we serve a God who in divine and incomprehensible humility was willing to face death himself to set you free from death. He was willing to give up his life that we might have eternal life. Let me read these verses. Chapter 18, verse 31. It says, In taking the twelve, Jesus said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what was said. One of the bigger questions that presents itself to us in these verses is this one. What did the prophets write? about the Son of Man? What did these prophets of old have to say about this character, the Son of Man? First, I want you to understand who the Son of Man is. Maybe you don't know. That's Jesus. It's sort of a a nickname that he carries. Jesus is talking about himself, and he's saying that when these people of long ago referred to the Son of Man, that was, like I said, a nickname for the Messiah, the one who would come to save his people from their sins. But what I want you to see here, and this is so important for you to understand, that Jesus' death and resurrection was not just some tragic progression of circumstances that nobody saw coming. 
that caught Jesus by surprise. It wasn't just an unforeseeable accident. It wasn't this tragedy, this mere tragedy of Shakespearean proportions like Romeo and Juliet. Jesus speaks a prophecy here, and he tells us about future events that are going to happen soon. And he says to his disciples, nobody should be surprised that these things are going to happen. Not only because I'm telling you now, but because the prophets of old spoke these things hundreds of years ago. Look at it another way. Jesus is telling his disciples not to be surprised when they see him in chains. Not to be discouraged when they witness him being spit upon and beat and flogged. They shouldn't be surprised when they find him bleeding and suffocating on the cross, crowned with thorns and mocked by the crowds. They shouldn't be discouraged even when the moment comes when he's finally laid in the tomb. Because all of this was planned by God from of old for the salvation of men. And the prophets saw that it would happen. You already heard David's prophecy in Psalm 22. Isn't that fascinating? Jesus quotes these words as he slowly dies on the cross, essentially saying, that that David saw back then is this now. It was me. But I want to take you to another prophet who sees it very explicitly. Christ crucified for the sins of his people. Isaiah 53. I'd love for you to turn there with me. I realize Isaiah is not a book of your Bible that you probably spend too much time in. So if you have to use the... uh, table of contents in the beginning of your Bible. There's no shame in that. I would love for you to turn there and actually read it with me. It's sort of in the middle of your Bible. And what we have in Isaiah 53 is the description of what has, been co- has come to be called the suffering servant. Now you need to understand, Isaiah lived approximately 700 years before Jesus and his disciples. 700 years. Think back what was taking place 700 years ago. You, you're probably not even entirely sure. It was, you know, the, the medieval times, the 1300s, right? It, it was the Crusades and, and uh, that period of time. That's a long time ago. And yet in this chapter of the Bible, 700 years before Jesus, 700 B.C., we find an incredible description of what Jesus will suffer in the days ahead as he is going to go to Jerusalem to fulfill the prophecy that he has just said, and he will be crucified. Isaiah saw it all in great detail long before Christ came. And there's many references like this throughout the Old Testament, but this one's so explicit. Let me read it. And I understand it's a little bit long. You're going to get just like a, a... fire hose of scripture this morning, but that's okay. That's a beautiful thing. It's more important than what I have to say, so just listen along. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up like, or before him, like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. This is talking about Jesus. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. 
but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Isn't it amazing that at his trial, unjustly accused, Jesus said nothing in defense of his innocence? By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Wow, thinking back to Luke 18, Jesus says this, everything that, was, that is written about the Son of Man will be accomplished. Now, there's lots of allusions there to the actual events that are going to occur in the coming days as Jesus goes to Jerusalem and he is arrested and beaten and tried unjustly and crucified. But what I want you to understand here is that Jesus is not only referring to the details that are going to take place regarding his death and resurrection, He's also talking about what the sacrifice that he will make with his own life is going to accomplish for us, what it will achieve for us. In Isaiah 53, 700 years before Jesus, what we find is the glory of the cross of Christ. Isaiah writes this in verse 11, By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, Make the many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. And so the prophets saw that Jesus would die, and they saw that his death would accomplish something truly wonderful. The death of Christ, the death of God, would be the means by which people from every age in history and every corner of the earth would be saved from their iniquities and receive eternal life from God himself. Out of love, God killed God to save us from our sins. And I want to get even more explicit here as we think about the death of Jesus. Why did Jesus need to die? The answer to this question I think is so important that it demands that we spend some time reflecting on it. Jesus is going to the cross to do an impossible thing. Do you understand? He's going to save sinners from sin, something that we could never do on our own. Aline and I had this wonderful conversation with 
a lady just this week, and, and you could see that she understood that there was nothing that she could do on her own that would appease God. She's broken. And so in great, unfathomable love, God is going to die to save us from sin. But what specifically is He going to save us from? We could say sin, but I, I, I want to give you another answer. I want, to, I want you to actually turn with me to Romans chapter 1, which I think gives us a good answer to this question. Romans is going to make you flip way to the right. Romans chapter 1. And I, I confess, if you gave me enough time, I could give you many, many things that Jesus' death accomplished for us. There are lots of things that he saved us from. But I want to highlight this one because I think it often gets left, that, left out. We, we often uh, kind of forget that this is the case. Romans 1, starting in verse 18, and I'm going to read all the way through 23. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things have, that have been made, and so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Uh, now, I, I confess that as we read these verses, we find a difficult concept as we wrestle with this question, what has Jesus saved us from? But it's so important that I have to try and offer an answer here. And I want to phrase it maybe in a way you haven't heard before. Jesus has saved us from Jesus, is what I think Romans 1 teaches us. Uh, if you are struggling to grasp that, go home today and read Revelation 19. I encourage you to write that down. And see the vision of Jesus as he returns one day in the future. Because God loves us and because mankind is under the wrath of God because of our disobedience, Christ died to save us from God, from the wrath of God. Look at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now again, I don't think this is the only thing that Jesus has saved us from, but I think it's an important thing that often gets left out because it is an uncomfortable thing. And we need to understand that because of our sin and our unrighteousness, we are enemies of a holy God. That's what Scripture teaches. We are rebels living in a land that does not belong to us, doing our very best at every turn to subvert the authority of a good God. And our rebel hearts have violated the justice of this good God 
whose kingdom we attempt to overthrow through things like selfishness and idolatry, disobedience. We've alienated ourselves from God through sin. And in so doing, you need to understand that you've actually broken the tender heart of God by declaring yourself His enemy. And there's truly no hope for us in this natural state. Because God has declared that He will be victorious over all of His enemies. He will make them His footstool. He will crush them underneath His feet. But here is the wonder of it all. The beauty of the gospel. This good news that we preach and proclaim as Christians. God actually doesn't want to crush us. He doesn't. God doesn't want to smite us. God doesn't want to leave us without hope and under his wrath. 1 Timothy 2.4 says that God desires that all people would be saved and come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, of the truth. For some incredible, mysterious reason, God would rather wrap his arms around us in love than wage war against us as the enemies that we are. And so he does the impossible. God becomes a man, and God steps under the wrath of God to suffer for us what we rightfully deserve. Rather than banish us from his presence, rather than destroy us for our sins, God becomes one of us to take on the burden of his wrath for all of us. And so on Jesus, God lays the iniquity of us all. In Jesus, God reveals the wrath of God towards unrighteousness. And then he takes that wrath and he lays it upon his very own son himself so that we might be set free from the effects of sin and death. And do you see the wonder of this? Do you see it? In the death of Christ, God upheld his perfect justice, and yet he established his right to love the just, or the unjust. Let me say that again. In the death of Christ, God upheld his perfect justice, and yet established his right to love the unjust. That's you and that's me. God, out of an overwhelming desire to have a relationship with you, a really superfluous desire because he's in perfect relationship with himself, he doesn't need any more relationships, and yet he desires one with you. He bore the weight of his anger against your sin himself. This is what Jesus is declaring he is going to do in the days ahead. And so the unrighteousness that belongs to you God takes upon himself, and the righteousness that belongs to him, he tenderly gives to you. Through Christ, God has done the impossible. In these verses from Luke 18, Jesus predicts his own death. And when we ask the question, why? Why does Jesus intend to die on the cross? The answer that we get is this. Jesus died for us to restore to us the broken relationship with God. Tim Keller, I think, puts it wonderfully. He says this, All human problems 
are ultimately symptoms, and our separation from God is the cause. Man, if only more people understood that simple truth, running around furiously trying to fix all of the symptoms. I feel those symptoms, don't you? And yet we try to fix them with little band-aids in life in all kinds of different ways. Ultimately, what we need is the work that Jesus has done to restore us to right relationship with God. Someone texted me, thank you, Jesus. Amen. That is what Christ died to make right. Now, here's what I'm dying to ask you. Do you understand these things? That's the question, or that's the problem that we see with the disciples. And so I ask you, do you grasp what I'm saying to you as I tell you these things? Look at verse 34 of Luke 18. I know you've got to flip back there. So do I. You've got a second. Verse 34, speaking of the disciples, it says, But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was being said. And I want you to understand, the disciples actually had an excuse for not understanding. It was hidden from them. We don't have that same excuse. These things have been revealed to us in the pages of Scripture. We know why Jesus had to die. And we know that he rose from the dead. We, we know how the story ends. We know that he gets victory over sin and death. And so now the question comes to each and every one of us, do you understand these things? Do you grasp the weight of glory before you in the crucifixion of Christ? Do you understand the significance of God killing God for your sake? Do you see the implications for your life? If God has died for you, think how great a debt you owe him. You can never repay him. You can never come even close. And yet all that you are and all that you have, it all belongs to him because of all that he has done on your behalf. God has done the impossible for you, out of love for you. He has become a man. He has died. He has taken his own wrath upon himself. And he went to the grave to suffer death so that you might have life eternal. Do you understand these things? Do you grasp the consequences? And actually, I'm not even talking about your head. Because you might nod and go, yeah, yeah, I've heard this before. I'm talking about your heart. Does your heart grasp these things? Do you believe in your heart? And I pray you do. May God open the eyes of your heart to comprehend the weight of this good news. I want to close with this and try and wrap it back into the rich ruler. If we look at the wider context of these verses within Luke 18, we see that the the story of the rich man is, is intricately connected to these verses where Jesus says, I'm going to the cross to die. It's not an accident that Jesus tells his disciples these things, what is coming next, immediately after telling the rich man to follow him. Do you see? The rich man wants to know what he must do to have eternal life, And Jesus says, 
follow me. But where is Jesus going that his disciples should follow him or that this rich man should follow him? Where is he going? He's going to the cross. That's what he says. To die in obedience to the Father. See, I think the rich man understood something here that we might accidentally miss. I think the rich man understood the depth of what Jesus was asking him to do. I think the rich man actually understood that Jesus was asking him to lose control of his own life. With all of his wealth, here's a man who is in control of his life. He is master of his own destiny. He was calling the shots. And Jesus invites him into something absolutely terrifying. Jesus says, in essence, give up control. Surrender it to me. Follow me into the hands of the Father wherever that might take you. And then Jesus tells us, I can ask you to do this because I'm doing it myself. He's headed to the cross, which is where the Father is asking him to go. You know that in the garden, Jesus prayed, Father, take this cup from me. Take this responsibility from me. He pleads with his Father, if there's another way, do it another way. And yet, in spite of his desire to find another way for the suffering to be removed, Jesus gives up control. And this is what it means to understand in your heart. This is what I'm asking from you. This is what it it takes to comprehend, not just with your head, but with your heart. It means that you entrust yourself, you entrust your life to the gentle, loving care of the Father. This is where Jesus asks us to follow him into the hands of the Father, wherever that might take us. Jesus entrusts himself to God, and actually it costs him his life. And so again, do you see the implications for your own life here? The truth is, you can keep control of your own life like the rich ruler does, but the end of that course of action is death. It's eternal death. Do you see the irony? Or you can give up control of your life, surrender it to the Father, and follow Jesus where he goes, even to the cross, the cross of self-death. And in that dying to self, you can have eternal life as the Father takes control. Ultimately, that's the decision before you. And for those of us who are Christians... Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that this is for those in the room who are not yet believers. Yes, I call those of you who are not believers to consider the implications of this truth. But for those of us who are Christians, this is a decision that we have to make daily as well, isn't it? Will I try and grasp control of my life in this cosmic tug of war with God and do with my life what I think is best? Or will I entrust my life to the Father and follow Jesus even to self-death day after day after day? Will I surrender control and trust the Father because I know that He loves me so deeply after everything He's done for me? Or will I try and keep it for myself? What we learn from Jesus is that trusting the Father led to the cross in short term. It led to death but it led to the resurrection 
in long term, eternal life. And in contrast from the rich man, we learn that not trusting the Father, it led to, or might lead, I guess I should say, to riches, to comfort, to self-control in this life, abundance in the short term, but in the long term, it's just death. So again, I urge you then, trust the Father. Relinquish control. If, if you want to know what it means to actually be a Christian, it, it means you trust that God is good, that Jesus will lead you, that the Father will take care of you, that there is resurrection power in this truth, that God desires to restore the broken relationship that you might have life eternal, resurrection life, not just in the afterlife, but here and now. That like Christ, you might know death to self so that like Christ, you might know the resurrection power of the love of God. Let me pray for us. God, I I admit that it, it almost seems profane to say that Jesus saved us from Jesus. But it's true because we are enemies. And we didn't love you first. You loved us first. And the proof is in this wonderfully true story that the prophets testified about long ago that God, out of love, with a broken heart over the broken relationship with his creation, would humble himself to come to wear human flesh and to go to the cross to die that we might be restored. And Lord, what what can we say truly? What, What words could proceed from our hearts or our mouths to express the depth of our gratitude? I only ask, Lord, that you would help us to trust you, that we would surrender ourselves to your control, that we would see the goodness in self-death that we might have eternal life, that we would have the courage to lay down our lives and follow you, knowing that what the Father has in store for us is good, is life eternal, even if it comes at a great price in the short term. Lord, I ask that you would fill us with your resurrection power through the knowledge in our heart of hearts of the love that you have for us in Christ. Amen.